Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to a spooky episode of Lost in Science. Actually, it's not spooky. It is our Halloween episode, annual Halloween episode, where we don't go spooky. We generally go science fiction. Yes. Lost in science fiction, could you say we are? We are so lost in science fiction. It is easy to get lost in science fiction because it is a might confusing. Yeah, and I mean, if you've ever listened to um, you and um, Stu in at any other times, but not on the radio, um, you'll know that you guys spend most of your time talking about science fiction, getting lost in that, right? Amongst other things. <laughs> yeah, we have been discussing arcade games recently. As yeah. In our yeah. defence. Which are kind of science fiction-y. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. in the realm. It is in the realm. The, yeah. The realm. Speaking of realms, uh, we thought for this year's Lost in Science Fiction, we would have a theme as such. And what better theme than the biggest science fiction and just science anniversary of the year? Yes. And I'm not talking about uh, 2019, the International Year of the Periodic Table. No. Talking about 50 years since man landed and woman, person kind, landed on the moon. The Apollo 11 landing on the moon. You're absolutely correct, Claire. It is a lunar, loony, lost in science fiction show today, this year. Um, yeah, so anyway, let us get to it. Um, Claire, what are you going to delight us with? Well, uh, science fiction is normally speculative to the future, right? And there's been a lot of films this year around what happened back in 1969. Um, but there has been one film called Ad Astra, which looks at the future of space travel and to the moon. And there are some pretty freaky, deaky scenes in that, specifically around um, what happens when animals go loco in space. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about loco animals in space. Sounds incredibly realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, What's the science behind... (laughs) Crazy space animals. Crazy space animals. Animal psychology in space. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. great stuff. Speaking of crazy space animals, Stu, what have you got for us? (laughs) Well, uh, actually, I have got a fair bit of uh, crazy space animals. I'm going to sort of... I, I was looking at the history of people writing about going to the moon and it has a really long history. People have been writing stories about this for a really, really long time. So I'm going to... Because it's just there. You just look at the window and it's yeah. there. It's like, and ah. you can see it. But I think there, there seemed to be a long time when people didn't really think of it as a place. Yeah. It was a thing that you could look at, but it wasn't somewhere you could go. And it actually took some changes in the way people thought to think of, oh, maybe you could actually go to the moon. And then they started writing stories about that. And it's, you know, centuries ago they started doing that, which is quite interesting. Uh, But uh, what they imagined was there is, like I said, full of crazy space animals and all sorts of weirdness that they imagined was on the moon, which is pretty weird when you think about it. We can see what's on there and there's not a lot. Excellent. Well, as for me, I decided, being a very special occasion, I thought I would go with a special kind of story. I am going to not look at a film or TV or a book or anything like that. I am going to look at music. I am going to be fact-checking one of the most significant songs relating to the moon landing, which is 
David Bowie's space oddity. Ah, you're taking you the fun out of Bowie, are you? I am going to take the fun out of it because nothing makes popular music more fun than scientific didn't, accuracy. You didn't go for Rocket Man by Elton John. Now, I, I want to be fair. You know, <laughs> yeah. And Rocket Man, I mean, obviously... Uh, a major movie at the moment. Um, not a superhero movie, it turns out. I was mis- very misled by the poster. <laughs> no, you're thinking of The Rocketeer. Ah, yes. Yeah. Oh, um, I remember that film. Oh. You see, I want to I want to fact check these these songs and check the science on them. Uh, Rocket Man, he specifically says he doesn't understand the science. So I don't think it's really fair then to judge him on his... Also, I think he goes to Mars, if memory serves. Mars, yes. Mars, yeah. So, yeah, but maybe he has to go to the moon first. He doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't know what's well, going on. No, no, no. As, as Donald Trump told us, Mars is just a part of the moon. Yeah. So. <laughs> Look, anyway, we have a lot of science and loony stuff to get through, so let's get on with the show. So... As we said, this year did mark the 50th anniversary of the first lunar landing by humans from Earth that we know of. (laughs) (laughs) But in fiction, people have been making the journey to our biggest satellite for centuries. And people have been obviously been fascinated by the moon since prehistory. They first looked up and saw this big thing in the sky that kept changing and coming up at weird times and all that sort of business. But it's not surprising that it got their attention. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until relatively recently that people understood that it was an actual world they could possibly visit or that someone in the future could possibly visit. And when I say relatively, I mean the last few centuries. So there were stories from before then about visiting the moon. They're mostly sort of fantastical stories, not really science fiction. So, for example, an epic poem from 1516 called Orlando Furioso. Cool name. That is a cool name. Is that a superhero or no, an astronaut? It's or a guy who goes mad. He gets rejected by his love and goes mad. And a knight, an English knight, travels to the moon to find his lost wits wow. to bring them back. And he is uh, that is is that where your wits go when you go a bit? Apparently, well, the, they used to believe moony. the moon was where everything from Earth that was lost went to the moon, like, like all socks. those socks. Yeah, yeah, it's just a pile of them up there somewhere, craterful. <laughs> So, spoiler alert, the knight finds Orlando's wits and brings them back in a bottle and Orlando sniffs it and he gets his sanity back. So, there's no rocket in that story or any kind of spacecraft. He uses the biblical Elijah's chariot to get to the moon. Um, so, it's not really science fiction. It's kind of like a, a like a legendary sort of tale. It's a bit more like gods and monsters rather than science fiction, so to speak. Um, but also from the 16th century is the origin of the idea that the moon is made of green cheese. So where did this idea come from? The original text of John Hayward's Proverbs, which is spelt with an E-P-R-O-V-E-R-B-E-S, Proverbs. He means green as in fresh and unripe, not the colour green. Because you can see... Oh, okay, right. You can see the moon's not green, so it'd be yeah. weird to say it was green cheese. So he's saying it's, it's like an a, unripe cheese. Like a young cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than a mature cheddar. Why is it moldy? <laughs> it's kind of like covered with dark splotches. It does look yeah, a bit like, like a, a camembert. Like a ricotta? Or a, I mean, it could be a bit of a feta. Mm. Uh, but yeah, obviously he was, he was just being sarcastic. He didn't really think the moon was made of cheese. He was just uh, oh, being, John. Being, being all wacky, John Hayward. But the invention of the telescope in the 17th century brought about a new understanding of the moon and its surface and made people start to think that you could actually get there and walk around on it because they could see that there was a surface with mountains and valleys and craters and all sorts of things like that. So Johannes Kepler, the astronomer famous for 
his laws of planetary motion, wrote a novel called Somnium in 1602 about people who could fly to the moon and described how Earth might appear from there. Oh, right. Yeah. So Was he correct? Well, not really. And, and he was a bit off on a couple of his, you know, predictions and everything, but he, basically because it wasn't a scientific proposition, he didn't actually publish it. His son published it after he died. But he did actually describe what he thought Earth might look like from space and made some sort of scientific predictions. But because of his actual science career, he didn't publish it. He didn't really want people to know that he was making up these fantastical stories about travelling to the moon. And, you know, it was demons who took people to the moon, not not spaceships of any kind. He was, was a bit beyond Quite a shift from the other guy who was going with Elijah's chariot. He's got demons going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, talk about gods and monsters. Oh. It's... um. So that book wasn't published till 1634 and his son published it, but it might have uh, inspired Francis Godwin to write his story, The Man in the Moon, where a man flies to the moon pulled by geese. Really? Yeah, pretty fantastical way to travel. You sit in a little thing and get pulled up to the moon by geese. Um, Sounds nice. Also in 1634, John Wilkins, a clergyman from England and brother-in-law of Oliver Cromwell... Wow. Uh, published a paper called Discovery of a World in the Moon. And this is actually a rational sort of semi-scientific document where he Was outlines... Yeah, he published yeah. it yeah. Uh, in 1634. He outlines his reasons for thinking the moon is a world not unlike the Earth where other creatures may live, which is pretty radical stuff for a priest. Um, but, but the way he puts it across is quite rational. He says, well, we know there's solid Earth and we know that there might be an atmosphere and if there's an atmosphere and there's solid ground, maybe there'll be... Other weird creatures there, but we don't really know what they are. So he's got a whole lot of reasons for it, and it's a very rational way that he sets them out. But it's based on, you know, stories from other people, really. Cyrano de Bergerac was inspired by the, the geese story, uh, and he wrote uh, a story about a man being launched to the moon by fireworks, which is probably like the first reference to rocketry. That was called Voyage dans la Lune. Uh, that was in 1657, which shares a title with the first science fiction film released in 1902. But the film was based on pretty much on the works of Jules Verne, not right. on Bergerac's or de Bergerac's version. And before writing his most famous work, Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe wrote a story about an inhabited moon populated by lunarians who visit Earth using a feather-covered rocket called the Consolidator, <laughs> which is also the title of his book. Also the title of my band, my next <laughs> band anyway. Consolidator. Yeah, the Consolidator. Um, apparently not really a science fiction story, but a satire of earthly politics in 1805, which is when he wrote the book. Wow. So he basically used the Lunarians as commentary on what was going on in politics So good. Uh, Washington Irving, you probably know he wrote the story, uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Great Halloween story there. Yep. But he wrote an allegorical story about the colonization of the Americas called Conquest of the Moon, and it was set on the moon. Right. And he wrote that in 1809. Jules Verne... Obviously, famously wrote two books about people visiting the moon being shot from a gigantic cannon. Uh, and H.G. Wells' first men in the moon arrived on the moon by using anti-gravity shielding, which is a pretty amazing sort of technological leap, which we still can't do now. That was in the early 1900s, he wrote that. And Arthur C. Clarke turned his hand to the first humans on the moon in a 1951 novel called Prelude to Space, where... He uh, he later admitted he intended to encourage people to think of spaceflight as a reality at a time when people were still very doubtful about the possibility of launching rockets into space. Arthur C. Clarke's 
astronauts landed on the moon in 1978 in his story. While in reality, they arrived only a year after another epic story he wrote involving what had, by the time of his story, when it was set, become mundane trips to the moon. 2001 A Space Odyssey, going to the moon in that story is basically just like getting a flight to Sydney or something like that. Yeah. So the moon has somewhat slipped out of favour as a subject of science fiction since the actual moon landing in 1969. I guess the reality of the moon is less interesting than some of the fanciful tales people imagined before they knew what was actually there. Um, And certainly the lack of strange creatures on its surface and no life or atmosphere have dampened people's enthusiasm for lunar stories and instead they've turned their sights further afield so i think these days in a post moon landing science fiction both on screen and in book form mars is the new moon Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, as I said, I wanted to do a bit of a moon song to celebrate the the moon landing. Most of the songs about the moon are just kind of like not very science-y. Like, I mean, Blue moon. Yeah, moon river. I mean, yeah. come on. There are no rivers on the moon. No. Um, but instead, I am going to talk about Space Oddity, which was released on the 11th of July 1969, which was five days before the Apollo 11 launch. So we're talking David Bowie here. It was. It was, yeah, it was like um, basically an opportunistic novelty song by David Bowie, who presumably is a one-hit wonder who never went anywhere, I'm guessing. Because, <laughs> you know, it just sounds too contrived, doesn't well, it? it? But he, had, he did have some pretty weird novelty songs before that, if you ever want to look up the, uh, the Laughing Gnome song. True, but this is his first hit. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And he totally changed direction after this yeah. one. Um, now, it does seem to describe a voyage to the moon, um, but it was written and recorded well before the actual moon landing, probably based more on Stanley Kubrick's film, which you mentioned, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was released in 1968. So we probably shouldn't, you know, criticise it too much for being inaccurate, although I'm going to. <laughs> yeah. So we're just going to go through the song and look and see if there's anything we need to, to bring up. Great. Okay? All right. First line is uh, ground control to Major Tom. We haven't got very far. Okay. Look, one of the things in the song is this kind of theme of loneliness. I don't know if you know, but like the moon missions had a three-person crew. Yeah. And even the Apollo's predecessor, which was the Gemini program, had two astronauts in the capsule. So like really to get something equivalent, we have to go back to the Mercury Program, which was America's first kind of ventures into space, uh, where, of course, you had, say, John Glenn, who was the first US astronaut to orbit the Earth. Mm. Um, so it seems to be some similarities there. And John Glenn, in fact, was a major. So maybe instead of Major Tom, it would have been Major John, based on John Glenn. I'm just, I'm just speculating. Oh. And then maybe, maybe his lawyers told him, don't write this about yeah. John Glenn. But what I'm saying is the rank kind of checks out, Major yeah. kind of checks yeah, yeah. out. Yeah, um, John, Tom, they're not... Yeah. They're not totally dissimilar names. Just out of comparison, though, the Apollo astronauts, um, Buzz Aldrin was a colonel. Uh, Michael Collins, who the command module, was a lieutenant colonel. Neil Armstrong, though, was a civilian, did not have a rank. So he wasn't an Air Force pilot. No, he was just mm. a civilian test pilot. All right, next line. Uh, we're going very well here. Next line is, take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Okay, so this is part of the countdown sequence of the song, which um, I should probably give a bit of a pass on because it has to be squeezed down the whole countdown, which lasts quite a while, into the um, the first verse of the song. So you hear a voice counting in the background of this bit that's clearly going much slower than one number per second. <laughs> 
So that's clearly inaccurate, but the events happened there created in a much smaller time. So the Apollo astronauts actually arrived at the capsule with their helmets already on about two and a half hours before launch. Yeah, but no one's going to buy that album. No, that's <laughs> uh, So clearly Major Tom, obviously, he didn't put his helmet on until he'd had his protein pills. That's why he had to wait to put his helmet on, because you can't get it in your mouth mm. while you've got your helmet on. Doesn't it have a visor like a, um, like a motorbike helmet? So for the monkeys to lift up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get spoilers there. Um, but would he have done that anyway? Now, it's true that the astronauts are often put on a low-fiber diet for obvious reasons. They don't want to have them you to... You don't want, to, you don't you want, don't want, want your bowels moving... No halfway through a space flight no at at supersonic speed no yeah um a protein pill does seem unlikely though um because you're not going to get a lot of nutrition for just a protein pill incidentally though john glenn he was the first u.s astronaut to eat in space he did have pills but he had sugar pills for energy Mm. also had a tube of applesauce just to see if it could be done so this is (laughs) before the era of space food sticks obviously basically yes yeah Right. Okay. So next verse. Uh, that's mostly about shirts and stuff. We don't need to to worry about that. It is, it's interesting though. It's, it's you know it's about the media attention on the on astronauts. It is really. It is. Yeah. Then he's dared to leave the capsule where he's floating in the most peculiar way. Now, don't know why he thinks it's peculiar. He should have done some weightlessness training. Now, see, of course, when you're in space, you're weightless not because the gravity is weak up there, but because you're basically in free fall. Uh, when you're in orbit, you're just moving under the force of gravity. It's like being just falling if you're on Earth, where you can't feel the force of gravity while you're falling. So you can achieve this in an aeroplane that's in a big free fall parabola, or, I don't know, you could go into an elevator where they cut the cables and you plummet. That could work too. He tells us later he's gone past 100,000 miles. Now, that is nearly halfway to the moon, which is 238,900 miles away, or 384,400 kilometres, which is why I think he's on his way to the moon in this particular mm. Right. Oh. You wouldn't go that far away if you're just doing a loop of the Earth, would you? Yeah, yeah. No. So the moon is mm. over 380,000... Reading 000. between the lines. I like it. The moon is over 380,000 kilometres away. Now, to compare that to like distances on Earth, here's a fun fact for you to remember. Um, the metre, when it was defined originally, was meant to be one ten millionth of the distance between the North Pole and the equator. So that means the circumference of the Earth is around about... Um, 40 million metres or 40,000 kilometres. Right. So when you're looking at 380,000 kilometres for the moon, that's nearly 10 times around the Earth. Feel free to go home and check your car's odometer and see how much of the voyage to the moon you have done. Now, while it's funny, he says he thinks his spaceship knows which way to go. Well, yes, that is fairly accurate because when you fire the rockets you put into orbit to intersect the moon, um, you don't have to steer because gravity, the orbit, takes care of itself. So we'll give, that is correct, I would say. (laughs) <laughs> Leave it in. Leave it in. And then he gets there. He says he's floating around his tin can far above the moon. So, yes, he's going to the moon. And he says... Hang on, hang on. But tin? Well, I think what he's being metaphorical. Capsules? I'm going to let him pass. Oh, okay, okay. So now the... Now the, the metaphors, metaphors are allowed. Describing yeah. his journey, I think it would take... <laughs> we have to take it literally that he is floating. When he says, I'm floating in most... No, way, I'm talking about the tin. I'm talking about the tin. Is it made out of tin? It's not made out of tin. It's not made out of tin, obviously. There we go. But what, he says, would tin have melted on the on, during launch, or is is that why they wouldn't make it out of very, tin? Yeah, I don't think very durable metal for that. Right, purpose. okay. Yeah. Um, he does say, "Planet Earth is blue, and there's nothing I can do." That famous line, which I've always thought was a strange line, because yeah, why? Uh, who cares? I mean, what? You, no, you can't do anything about the Earth being blue. It's a play um, on words, Chris. It is. Do because, you think it might have something to do with the loneliness part? Maybe. 
I thought maybe he's, it's a commentary on what we're doing to the earth, like pollution and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously climate change is a big issue at the moment. So I had a look at any research on this topic. There was some research published early this year, in February this year, which looked at the effect of climate change on the colour of the earth. Right. And so the warping ocean will affect phytoplankton. It will decrease the phytoplankton in some areas and increase in others. And what you're actually going to ha- find is that the areas currently where it is the deepest part of the ocean, where it's very sort of deep blue, that's going to get less phytoplankton. It'll get bluer. Uh, whereas closer to the pole, there is more phytoplankton and that will probably um, get increased and get greener as well. So the greens and the blues will enhance thanks to climate change. And apparently, they reckon this is a way that you can measure the changes of the ocean just by looking at the changes in colour from space. So, so we um, should change it to the planet Earth is bluer and there's nothing I can do. <laughs> possibly, possibly. But generally, it checks out. I think, well done, David Bowie. Um, perhaps he will have a career in music after all. <laughs> Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, Halloweeners. So to celebrate the 50-year moon landing this year, there have been some killer moon films. First Man, don't know if you saw that. I didn't With Ryan that Gosling one. as Neil Armstrong. Mm. That was quite good. Um, and there was a documentary, Apollo 11. See that? No? Okay. Both were very insightful um, and honest portrayals of the moon landing in 1969. Um, honest being, you know, we didn't actually land on the moon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes, lols. Anyway, but, you know, this is lost in science fiction, not lost in moon landing documentary speculative history films. So today I'm going to be taking us down the road of one of the moon space science fiction films to come out this year, um, specifically the film Ad Astra. Have either of you seen it? No? No, I haven't caught that one. You haven't caught that one? No. Well, Ad Astra is actually Latin for to the stars. Yeah. So you know it's going to be good, right? Yeah. You know, you know, reaching for the stars. Oh, my God. It's full of stars. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, it's just imagine a really brooding, soft-talking Brad Pitt who can't get his heart rate over, uh, I think, 90 beats a minute or 80 beats a minute or something or like that. Explode. So all the... <laughs> <laughs> He's like an extremely explain. calm person. And he, anyway, this is like an Apocalypse Now sort of heart of darkness feel trip. Okay. Um, but instead of going down a river, they're going to the end of the solar system. And instead of Marlon Brando at the end with his like, you know, big... No. His, no. His quiet talking Marlon Brando, you've got Tommy Lee Jones at the edge of the solar system with an antimatter device as wow. well. Um, oh, also, just for everybody listening, there will be spoilers in this. I may have already made a few spoilers. I'm Sounds really like sorry. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we should put a blanket spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. So in this film, we see uh, we see Brad Pitt. He traverses the solar system. He makes it up as he goes along. He's almost hitchhiking from one spacecraft to the next. We see him get to the moon on a Virgin Galactic flight then he scrapes onto a flight to mars after a chase sequence with moon pirates in moon buggies which is a pretty awesome scene 
It's a moon buggy chase. It's a moon buggy chase wow. with, with moon pirates. With pirates. Yes. He stows, it's got everything. It's got everything. It's got everything. I mean, it only lasts for a couple of minutes, but it does. Um, he stows away on a rocket from Mars. He makes it past Uranus all the way to Neptune. <laughs> Thanks, Chris, for that one laugh. So, yeah, some pretty cool things happen in Ad Astra. But one of the more unusual, unexpected scenes in the film is a particularly horror-filled, dramatic scene where Brad Pitt's ship, on the way out from the moon, the ship receives a distress call from another ship and they decide to check out what's going on. So the ship's captain and Brad Pitt dock with this other ship and head in. Turns out, you know, very suspenseful. There's no humans around. Where did everyone go? What's going on? Anyway, then they sort of turn a corner, as is often the case, with a suspenseful film, and they come face to face with giant, super strong, zero gravity space baboons. <laughs> That's pretty scary. <laughs> pretty, pretty scary. It's like they're space. They're not moon baboons. They're not. Well, they're There's orbiting moon, the moon baboons. Yeah. So they're what? They're orbiting the moon baboon. Okay. All right. I'm sorry, I didn't call you a baboon. They're just orbiting the moon baboons. Baboons in the moons. Baboons in the moons. Anyway, these space baboons, they're angry and they eat the face of the captain. Like, like literally. Ow. Ow. Yeah. 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 Real ow. Real ouchy. So, yeah, look, I was quite shocked by the inclusion of a a, um, moon orbiting baboon. A murderous moon orbiting baboon. Yes, yes. And, you know, seeing a monkey in zero gravity trying to kill everything, it was, it was, it's a pretty ridiculous sight to behold. Mm. So, you know, I got to thinking, how likely is this sort of thing, you know, monkeys turning murderous in space? We ask the important questions. We ask the important questions, especially on Lost in Science Fiction. So, this is what I do know. Monkeys and apes have been sent to space. Yeah. Yep. The Americans did it in the 60s. The French did it. The Soviets were doing it all the way up to the 90s. And Iran actually sent a primate into space in 2007. So um, we're not just talking like your long-tailed macaques either. Um, we're talking some high-level apes. So, well, you wouldn't um, want to say they might get its tail stuck in the door. <laughs> it's a long-tailed macaque. Or the short-tailed macaques as well. You know, <laughs> I mean, any of the macaque family. We're not just talking, you know, small little yeah. no, little primates. size and Yeah, baboons. there were yep. there yep. were chimpanzees that were sent sent into space. Um Ham the chimpanzee uh spent time on a suborbital rocket in 1961. Uh where after that he returned back to Earth and lived in a zoo until he was 26 years old. So, yeah, there is a precedent for simians in space anyway, apart from humans. You know, monkeys, apes, they have been in there. Um, But back to the murderous nature of monkeys in Ad Astra. What could drive them to become so murderous? Maybe they were genetically modified before they left. Maybe they caught a virus. But one of the main issues, one of the biggest things when you're sending living things, living organisms into space is the radiation. So when you're in space, you're exposed more to solar cosmic rays, And these can cause mutations and over time, these mutations, you know, they could perhaps change the monkey behavior, they could make them really sick, or they could just cause them to be get really, really angry. Hence, these monkeys could become murderous. Or maybe they were just really hungry. I don't know. Yeah, could be. 
Could be. So, so the, the thing with the monkey doesn't crash back onto the moon and all the mad monkeys escape and become a planet of the apes. Is that, that's not the ending of the movie. Right? <laughs> it isn't the ending of the oh, movie, but maybe you need to do some fan fiction there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a great idea. So luckily we do have uh, in place an international animal welfare agreement for space-borne research. So any payloads or any experiments that go up into orbit and go into space around animals have to be have to go through an ethics committee so at least at least that's something that's some sort of um, some sort of check and balance to make sure that when we start heading back to the moon again our time there won't be cut short by homicidal monkeys Ground control to Major Tom. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science Fiction. Lost in Science Fiction is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us and tell us what you think of Moon Stories. Uh, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. Or you can find us on your favourite podcasting app where if you had the opportunity to give us a good rating and review, please try and do so as that will help other people to find us. Or you can just listen to us on the radio. Sure, why not? At the same time, every week, Claire, Stu, and Chris get lost in science. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grade. And the papers want to know who's judge you where. Now it's time to leave the capsule. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.